Back to formula. Who am I? You sure you want to know? If somebody told you I was just your average ordinary guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. Hello, welcome back to the Waffle Press Retrospectives. I'm your host, Diego Crespo. With me is Matt Garingo. That's me. We are here. We are both we are survivors of 9-11. No. We watched it on TV um, and we made it. Oof, might cut that one. Hey, well, um, did you uh, did you even know the attacks were happening as they happened? Uh, I was going to school in the morning. Same. I remember my mom watching the TV and being in shock and me not getting it. Yeah, I didn't know until after the school day was over. Although it, one teacher did break down and start sobbing in the middle of the day. So there's a fun memory. This is heavy for a Spider-Man episode. Oh yeah, we're here to talk about Spider-Man. All of them. Yay. Well, alright, no, no. One of us is probably going to be discussing all of them. Oh yes, Matt might be dipping out for a little bit. Do, do you want to stay on here? I don't... Um, I got prior commitments so so uh after this the sam raimi spider-man trilogy matt will be tapping out for a minute and i will bring on other guests to talk about the amazing spider-man series and then matt will come back and help reintegrate the series into his garingoness yes although i'm probably gonna have to find an excuse to just yell about the amazing spider-man films every spider-man movie we're doing it we're coming off batman retrospective which I think actually made us like appreciate them more. And I I found a lot of things to love about them. Um, Spider-Man's different, but Spider-Man has had a very rough history cinematically and the comics, uh, especially in the comics Uh, video games. He's actually fared a little bit better, which is odd, but whatever. Well, he had a dark age Uh, in video games. Oh, fuck. Yeah, he did. I would argue. Um, Although Spider-Man, the movie video game was the first game I had for the PlayStation 2. The first video game based on this movie, the 2002 Sam Raimi film, is actually pretty solid from what I remember. Yeah. But that might be nostalgia. I don't know. No, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so we're going to switch it up a little bit. Usually Matt's on the dives into the history of uh, of the film production and the, the, the bitchin' fuck-ups between the studios and the, the creators Did and the artists. Did you just say bitchin'? Yeah. Whoa. Is that is that bad? Where the fuck did that come from? I, I have no idea. Been uh, whole, Spider-Man changes me. You've had that one in I your guess. back pocket for like these fucking 20 podcasts we've done? <laughs> I'm going to wait till the first Spider-Man episode to drop <laughs> that I use the word bitchin' in my vocabulary. So, wasn't expecting that, gotta be honest. I, I apologize. It's thrown me. It's not a regular occurrence, as you can tell. Yes. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't exactly wield that word. Like it's something that you know you drop fairly regularly. But hey, all right. So what's so bitching about this production? Uh, that everything went horribly, terribly wrong from the get-go. Yes. All the way back to 1985, uh, Canon Films, I believe, was the first group to have. The rights to to make Spider-Man from Marvel Comics. Can you imagine? Yeah, you're just an experiment freak out. <laughs> what is that? 
Roger Corman also had the option to produce before the rights went to Canon Films. No, hey. But it, it was like a small window. It was like a couple months. Of course, nothing was going to happen. Hmm. Uh, so here's here's the whole gist of that. Once it went to Canon, Tobe Hooper, of all people, was suggested as the main director for the project. Well, that was like their star director at Canon. Like, that was their guy. Yeah, and, I mean, I love Tobe Hooper, but that's just like, that's, that's a little out there. Well, and his tenure at Canon was fucking Life Force, <laughs> Invaders from Mars, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Which are movies that, like, we love, but, like, were definitely not appreciated in their day. Oh, yeah, no, definitely not. Although, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 did make a lot of money, I think, right? Um, I don't, I think it bombed. Oh, shit, never mind. I think it was one of those, like, maybe it was, like, a home video hit, but I know it wasn't what the studio wanted. I know the studio definitely didn't like it, and I know it was kind of a disappointment. Um, But I don't don't know if that could still mean financial success, but... (laughs) Yeah, oh, that's too bad. Um, So, uh, in-house producers and writers, Golan and Globus, do you know who these people are? Oh, yeah. Check out Electric Boogaloo. It's a great documentary. Oh, yeah. Fantastic documentary. I finally checked it out. Uh, Golan and Globus wrote a treatment, but they completely misunderstood the <laughs> character of Spider-Man. And they actually wrote Spider- a, a treatment of Spider-Man as if he were a wolfman or a character like David Cronenberg's The Fly. And, uh, yeah. And Peter Parker would have been a suicidal monster trapped in, like, some government scientist laboratory fighting against a mad scientist with a group wow. of uh, master race mutations wanting to conquer the earth. Not a bad, there's not, there's a couple of good ideas in there. <laughs> Some of them will recur very frequently, actually. Yes. The next script involved Dr. Octopus, who would have had the catchphrase, okie dokie. And he, really? was, he was on a quest for some anti-gravity matter. I don't understand. Um, Is that from the comics? Because that's also the plot of the Spider-Man ride. I I have no idea. Maybe. Uh, Marvel has this weird fascination with, like, teasing things like Graviton in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for the five fans out there like me. Graviton's in that show. (laughs) But they, like, never do anything with him until later seasons. And then they reintroduce him as a different character's origin. It's weird. I don't know. Something about yeah. Marvel and Gravity just doesn't work. Uh, several bankruptcies and, and script treatments later, uh, the rights wind up at Columbia Pictures with the famous James Cameron, Cameron project. Mm-hmm. Electro and Sandman would have been the main antagonists here. And is this post Is this post uh, Terminator 2? This is post Terminator 2 Cameron. So this is like Cameron on top of the world. Yeah. At the very um, least, it's during the production of Terminator 2. This would have been his follow-up to True Lies. Because True Lies was, like, streamlined right after T2, you know? And did did this come before or after? Because he also dabbled in maybe doing an X-Men movie. I believe this was before. And then it just kept carrying through to the after. You get what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, Electro and Salmon as villains would have been reimagined as megalomaniacal parodies of corrupt capitalists. I'm sure it would have been very subtle. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
the whole capitalism angle is totally a James Cameron thing, so that's hilarious. But I just think it's funny that they had to specify corrupt capitalists. Well, because that's that's Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> Cameron doesn't seem to really have anything to say about capitalism, but he does have something to say about corrupt individuals. <laughs> so I don't know what the fuck. I think he gets enough of it for the bare bone structure of his scripts. Not a great writer, but a great director, you know? I wouldn't say bad writer. No, no, but... not not bad. Just it's he's broad. He's very broad. He keeps it keeps it simple. Sometimes too simple. But yeah, no, there's a there's a value in just streamlining his stuff. Like Avatar being the biggest hit on the planet is not an accident, you know? So the Electro and Sandman would have also their plot would have also included a master race of mutants that would have tried to welcome Spider-Man to their ranks before having to to battle him. Why do they keep doing this? I I don't know. This is also the plot of the musical. <laughs> what is Spider-Man's not an X-Man? You know, we might have to talk about the musical. Oh, I would love that so much. We might but like the cuz there's like six versions of it. I haven't I don't know anything about them other than someone fell and hurt themselves and they had to shut it down. They are the original plot was that the ultimate villain was gonna be the god Arachne. <laughs> and then no one understood it. So mm. then they just made it they just made it the Green Goblin. Oh, that's kind of sad. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I get there's a whole book about it. <laughs> Uh, Sandman would also have had a different name. They would, he would have just been called Boyd. I don't know why they changed the name of him. Like, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's Sandman, you know, but like it's it's a weird change. Uh, who would have been formed by a nuclear blast off a beach somewhere. Oh, mm. uh, <laughs> right? whatever. Yeah, it's, it's a little... Just Honestly, Electro extra. and Sandman as like follow-ups to like, because Cameron, you have to imagine, he's looking at this from like a special effects perspective, you know? Mm-hmm. He's like, what can I do after Terminator 2? And what can I do to prove that I'm responsible for the CGI boom and not Jurassic Park? <laughs> Which is a big deal to him. Yeah. So, you know, Sandman and Electro make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, Especially hey. Sandman. Yeah, if anyone could make them look like amazing at the time, it would have been Cameron. Uh, and yeah. I, I will have more things to say about those characters specifically later on because I do like their visual style. Um, oh, and this is the, also we're going to the... find out what it's like to live in a world without power. <sighs> Anyways, don't don't do this to <laughs> me already. Uh, the climactic battle would have taken on top, taken place on top of the World Trade Center. Uh, the story also involved ah. heavy profanity, which people were not a fan of, and MJ and Peter would have had a sex scene on the Brooklyn Bridge while he was wrapping her up in webbing. I know. Yeah, it's a, it's a little weird. So, I, I, I don't... so where do I so where do I see this? <laughs> oh, the script <laughs> is available online, actually. Wow, um, wasn't it, it was going to be like an R-rated film, right? I think that's what Cameron wanted because Cameron's like R-rated, like. I don't think he realized that this is a children's character. See, that's the thing. That's a consistent through line with all their um, attempts at Spider-Man up until this point. Everyone wanted it like something a little harsher. And uh, I think they would have been interesting. I just don't think they would have been very Spider-Man-y, you know? It could have been a Batman Return situation. It's one of those things where like all the villain stuff sounds really interesting, but like it, you can tell they're just not going to get Spider-Man right. Here's the thing. The project never really got to take off after various 
and honestly kind of ridiculous legal litigations, uh, rights issues, marketing miscommunications. 20th Century Fox got involved at one point. Uh, it's very confusing. I do not study law, and even just skimming through the Wikipedia, I was like, this is insane. I, I don't know how to make well, heads or tails of this. But I'm willing uh, to bet the canon purchase of the rights and then demise of canon definitely played a huge part in why it's so confusing. Yeah, it's a it's a perfect storm of just unfortunate bullshit that stopped it in its tracks. Well, and then, like I said earlier, like I'm pretty sure a film studio bought Marvel for a little bit. Like not not like a good studio. <laughs> like it was like New World Pictures, I think. And they tried like they only owned, they owned Marvel like very briefly at like the beginning of the '90s, and I think they were partly responsible for like the comic book bubble. Like they definitely inflated it. But they tried for years to, like, make movies out of these characters, and they just couldn't. I think they only got that that Punisher movie. Oh, God, that's right. And then there was, like, that shitty Captain America movie. Hey! Captain! Are you okay? You... you yeah. Hold it! Don't leave me out here! Yeah... Um, and then there was that Fantastic Four film that was, like, just made to, like, hold on to the rights. And then, you know, the bubble, the comic book bubble burst in the 90s. Um, for people who don't know, there was that was the era of collector's issues and hologram covers <laughs> and all sorts of shit. And everyone was just printing money. And then people realize that, oh, if you if everyone is buying 10 copies of issue number one, it's not going to be worth anything. <laughs> so the bubble burst pretty quickly, and companies were stuck with huge inventories of comics they just couldn't get rid of. And Marvel eventually declared bankruptcy. Yeah, and Marvel would eventually be purchased by the company Toy Biz which was, at the time, I believe, owned and operated by Ike Perlmutter and Avi Arad. So eventually, this is where it gets really fun for me. Uh, once Columbia Pictures got re officially retained the rights to make the film, um, they started searching for their next big hit, you know, like uh, um, Blade showed that these movies could work. X-Men eventually would show that they can bring in an audience. Now, there's this huge comic book audience out there that just hasn't been tapped into. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for a, a director to take the reins of the project. Potential directors include Roland Emmerich, Ang Lee, Jan DeBont, M. Night Shyamalan, Tony Scott, and David Fincher. Fincher, really? David Fincher pitched The Night Gwen Stacy Died at his, as his film. Again, oh wow, would have been interesting, but like to open the cinematic world to Spider-Man is is a little dark. Something about the darkness of the Spider-Man universe brought these really idiosyncratic directors, and I don't know what that is, but I just think it's interesting. Hey, hey well, Spider-Man is kind of a monster series. <laughs> he fights a different monster every week, you know. Mm -hmm. So. It makes sense. It makes a little bit of sense. Um, Tony Scott's also an interesting choice. Yeah, I don't know how and, he, would, uh, he would have handled the swinging and everything, but uh, 
Tony Scott was really good at that that ground level like humanity I don't with think his films. Any of those directors really sound like they could have done like a competent Spider-Man action film. Yeah. Oh, uh, also Chris Columbus, who falls into the same template as those other directors in that interesting, but I don't get I don't see it at all. Really interesting. You you'd call Chris Columbus interesting. Uh he had for for the time. For the time. I, I liked what he put out then. I, I really like his first two Harry Potter movies. I, I think those are very underappreciated. Mm, all right. Yeah. Why do I do this podcast with you? <laughs> Look, man, he wrote Gremlins, and that original script is mean as fuck. He's got a mean streak to him, too. Yeah, oh, no, no, definitely. That doesn't mean he's that interesting of a filmmaker. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, look, I'm just... <laughs> well, look, Jan de Bont made one good movie. Yeah. So... Yeah, but that's a Speed's a great film. Oh yeah, Speed's better than every movie Chris Columbus ever made. But I'm just saying, yeah. a really interesting crop of directors who I can't see fitting this franchise at all. Definitely, I don't see Chris Columbus really fitting any franchise. But <laughs> Hollywood disagrees with me. So oh um, well, you know, Five Nights at Freddy's. People love that five years ago, so they're gonna make the movie now. That's definitely not a dead fad. <laughs> The world definitely hasn't moved on. Um, so eventually that brings us to Sam Raimi, whose energy was so enthusiastic that he basically got the job when he walked into the room. I'm sure there's mm -hmm. more to the story, but that's all I could really find on it. And I just think it's kind of that's cute. what that's the Hollywood legend. And when the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. Mechanical web shooters were officially out by this point because I think that was from Cameron's draft. Uh, probably just to cut costs, but also uh, Raimi found that it was more um, like... That was really controversial at the time. Yeah, and you know what? I actually prefer it to the mechanical web shooters. I think it's interesting if it comes from within the character. You know, you get to get some really like empathetic, emotional storytelling with that. Like it's just this thing that's inside of them this whole time. And, yeah, it makes a little more sense that he is actually shooting bodily fluids everywhere. <laughs> That makes a little more sense. Yeah. Um, White bodily fluids. <laughs> In case you missed that, it was a coming-of-age story for young men. Certainly a coming-of-age story. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, for whatever reason, Cameron's script, uh, once they brought David Kep on from Jurassic Park, Snake Eyes, etc., um, David Kep basically, like, reprinted Cameron's draft like almost verbatim with the exception of like a couple action scenes some character dynamic stuff like it was apparently very similar um and eventually Electro and Sandman got funneled out I, I forget who traded I think Scott Rosenberg was the was the writer who kind of was like hey guys these aren't we can't do anything with these characters. Well, aren't there, like, there's, like, a dozen, like, uncredited writers on this movie, right? There's a dozen, like... there's a, a shit ton, but the main four are David Kep, uh, Scott Rosenberg, James Cameron, and James Cameron's only because that's the big draft that got everyone talking. Uh, and then eventually, the late, great Alvin Sargent, who's basically responsible for making this one of the greatest love stories in cinematic history. Because his, his job was to punch up the dialogue, mainly, but... He basically saved the the romance in this movie because I, I if I if my notes are right then it wasn't really working to the the capacity they needed it to. 
Well, he was uncredited on this one. He's, a, he's the only credited screenwriter on the next movie. Although a lot of story credits on Spider-Man 2. Yeah. Um, Alvin Sargent. Alvin Sargent, for people who don't know who Alvin Sargent is, um, he fucking wrote Ordinary People. <laughs> like, that's an odd choice for... He fucking wrote Paper Moon, man. <laughs> Like, but it's an inspired choice, honestly. Very. Um, here, uh, those four credited writers uh, would eventually relinquish their credit specifically to David Kep. I guess they all just had a decent enough working relationship to be like, yeah, go ahead. Because uh, apparently there was no hard feelings as far this as I This Spider-Man's not going to make any fucking money. Yeah. <laughs> And we're off to the races because Spider-Man is the original, like, thing that reinvigorated the box office. Let's just take a couple steps back, though. Because we got Sam Raimi's doing this. And this is at, like, a weird point in Sam Raimi's career. So, you know, comes out of doing, like, the Evil Dead films. He discovers the Coen brothers. (laughs) (laughs) He writes two films with the Coen brothers. Um, wrote Crime Wave, which is not a good movie. And The Hudsucker Proxy, <laughs> which is an amazing film if you haven't seen it. Um, but he does the Evil Dead trilogy, which is like barely a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's the weirdest series of films ever. Then he does like The Quick and the Dead, For the Love of the Game, which I don't think that's the actual title, but it's like a it? weird it, it's, title. It's a weird title. It's like For the Love of Game or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and then he does, like, and that game, that movie's not really that well received, correct? Like, it's kind of like mixed reviews. Yeah, I, I, I haven't mean, oh, seen he did, it. He also did Darkman somewhere in between all this. Which is great. Which is an amazing film, and kind of like the precursor of these, because it is like a, it's a proto-superhero film. Um, in an era where people were afraid to call these movies superhero films, you know? <laughs> one of those one of those movies that got produced only because the Tim Burton Batman made so much money. And then you get, like, out of nowhere, I, I think, like, right before this, he does A Simple Plan, Right? Mm-hmm. Which is like his Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> like it is straight up Coen Brothers. And it's like this, it's a very it's like a sleeper hit, and everyone's like, oh, he's great. But like even then, he's a weird choice for Spider-Man. Like, I just can't imagine with even though this movie, the first one, definitely feels more like he has like some oversight <laughs> happening. Mm-hmm. Like, where he's kind of, like, you can feel the studio notes on this a little bit, but he's still given an unprecedented amount of power. I guess they just didn't realize what this was, you know? Like, is that it? Maybe. I think that's the big thing for these franchise retrospectives that we're doing. We're we're really talking a lot about some of the biggest hits in pop culture history. And the biggest ones always tend to be, well, I hope this works. They don't think anything of it. this being the next thing. Because the truth is, 
you cannot think of the next big thing and have it be the next big thing. That's just not how the world works. That's not how, that's not how art works. After Lost, everyone wanted the next Lost. After oh, Game yeah, of Thrones, everyone's going to want the next Game of Thrones. That's why everyone wants to be the next Marvel. And it's just not going to happen because that's not how the world works. That's not how art is made. And you can't predict success like this. All you can do is hopefully work with a good team of people who have each other's backs and who care about the project that they're working on. And there's a lot of care and love in these three films. And this is also at a time for Spider-Man specifically. Spider-Man as a comic book series is kind of on the downturn, like right before the 21st century. Like he's lost a lot of popularity. Like the cartoon, there was a cartoon at the time that was popular, correct? Oh yeah, the down, 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 yeah, which was kind of like there was that in the X Men cartoon, which were like yeah, big yeah. hits. But X Men, even though X Men comics in the nineties like really sucked, <laughs> it was they sold a ton. But Spider Man like went through the Clone Saga and almost like didn't survive it. <laughs> like it was so bad and so long that they they didn't really know what to do and they almost kind of they kind of did like a soft reboot to the whole marvel universe we we suddenly got a bunch of series started over at number one we had like heroes reborn and all that shit and that at end at this time with toy biz taking over the the site was really set on we want to make movies we want to sell these properties as movies partly just to help get marvel out of bankruptcy <laughs> so a lot of they they reboot a lot of these comic series with the idea that we're basically writing these comics just to show to studios to be like okay here's how you make this into a movie which is also where you get stuff like ultimate spider-man which like came out in like 2000 you know mm-hmm. um and it's interesting because ultimate spider-man is like a reboot of the whole series right like it starts over from the beginning retells the origin um, and then this movie takes almost zero cues from it, <laughs> which I just find really interesting. This movie really is a throwback to the early years of the Spider-Man comic. Which is, I think, why some people are still kind of struggling with mm. it. Um, it's very sincere. It's very sincere, but it's also... When I watch this movie, it feels like what it feels like to read those, er- like the first like fifty issues of Spider-Man. You know, mm-hmm. like the first chunk where it's like Lee, Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, and then later John Romita. And this movie like combines all three of those styles. And and I think something people forget about the Ditko era is that he really got the acrobatics, the movements, like the shape of Spider-Man, but he also brought this incredible awkwardness. <laughs> and frankly, aw- like Peter Parker's kind of an off-putting character <laughs> in early issues of Spider-Man, you know? Mm-hmm. And this movie, I think, really captures that. Um, not like Not necessarily off-putting, but the awkwardness, definitely. Um, and I think people look at this and like criticize it for being awkward, but I think that's more Spider-Man than the thing a lot of people talk up, which is that he's kind of quippy, you know, that's like a big thing people talk about with Spider-Man. Yeah. And I think it's overly stated. He's definitely funny, but he's not 
the joke machine some people make him. He's not a Deadpool. One, because Deadpool basically sucks for like 99% of the time. There, there is uh-huh. certainly stuff I like about the character on occasion. I'm not, I'm not evil, you know, but, um, um the market is saturated. Well, every, every, <laughs> every hero quips now, basically from, yeah. from the Marvel era. I guess that's kind of their, their thing. I'm kind of glad that they're all, that they seem to now be finding that all the characters have their own comedic style, you know? Mm-hmm. Like they're all they're all funny. At least in the movies, they're starting to find that they're all funny in their like unique way. I, I think Brian Michael Bendis is generally a pretty good writer, but like when I read some of his stuff in the comics, not not all of them, but on his lesser work, for example, uh, they all sound very Aaron Sorkin-y. The characters are basically indistinguishable, you know, and that becomes a problem. He's definitely the Aaron Sorkin of comic books. Yeah. And I mean, and he's he, he has some great stuff. I loved Ultimate Spider-Man as a kid. Um, yeah, that I that read, is probably his best work. Yeah, and but it becomes a problem when they decided Brian Michael Bendis write everyone because <laughs> he kind of influenced the entire direction of the Marvel universe for the early two thousands. Yeah, and that becomes a problem. Although this was an era. I mean, I came in when I started reading comics, which was shortly after this. That was like the J. Michael Stravinsky era. Which definitely hasn't aged very well. Um, there was a time I've pretty much read all the Spider-Man comics. <laughs> there was a time when I was like really into Spider-Man, um, just going to the library. Um, I read all the Marvel. I like my. I just got the Marvel Masterworks. That was like usually what I did. Like after seeing this, I just immediately went out and got the first few Marvel Masterworks of Spider-Man and just read them religiously. So I know a lot of like the er- the really early stuff. Which is interesting because some of the stuff in this is stuff that won't get established until later in Spider-Man's mythos. But that's the benefit of doing a film like this is that you get to take elements from like an entire history and organize it a little better than people who are like making it up month to month. Truth is, it wasn't always like this. There was a time when life was a lot less complicated. Peter, are you all right? I'm fine. Hey, look, you're changing. I know I'm going to do exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Wow. I don't know, I just, I'm, I'm fascinated with because Spider-Man really is Marvel's, like, number one comic at the end of the day. Like, this is the one that, when all else is gone, everyone's going to remember Spider-Man. <laughs> like, he'll have the la- longest-lasting impact of all these characters. Um, and he's really the best one of that Marvel era. I think he captures those early 60s Marvel comics... Other than, like, the Fantastic Four, the Fantastic Four is just really strange. They found this, like, it's just an amazing setup for a character, which is a kid who kind of doesn't want to be a superhero, you know? But, like, he he's compelled to. Like, he's not, he really isn't the most moral guy. In the comics, I'm saying, anyway. Like, he, the, there's one, the first issue of Spider-Man, he tries to get a job with the Fantastic Four, but then blows him off when he realizes they don't pay. <laughs> like that's a big like that's the thing he's he's a superhero with very practical problems but impractical stories he's the most human 
of the Marvel character, of any comic book character, I'd even say. I just, I, his, his conflicts are very human, you know? Yeah, because he, uh, you're right. He's not like some ultimate good. He's a good person at the end of the day, but he fucks up in ways that are generally kind of relatable in an idea sense, you know? Some, sometimes there's just some, you know, comics happen, so there's some shit out there. Yeah. But, but generally, he, he's a... The, the, the humanity of the character is what I think makes him endure even more so than like Iron Man, who has basically taken the mantle of most popular Marvel character by this point because of the movies. And that'll fade yeah. away again, and then Spider-Man will go on top. That's just kind of the way things will work out, I think. I, I just, if Spider-Man will endure more. I mean, that's just... Iron Man's all hype. <laughs> I'm sorry, he's not... Oh, I've never like... heard it said that way. Am I wrong? I, I think so, but only slightly because I agree with the, the Spider-Man hypothesis. It's I agree just, with your hypothesis. The whole point of Iron Man is that we should privatize war. <laughs> no, that's, we're not. We're not getting into that. I don't like. I don't like Iron Man. Well, here's the thing I love about movies, uh, specifically with the superhero stuff. So, like with the original Donner Superman, how. I believe, like, the last time we were talking about Batman for the Lego Batman, you had brought up that it kind of coalesced uh, multiple stories. It, it saw the through line emotionally and thematically of the Superman character and was able to take these ideas from comics and shape a narrative around it in a way that was impactful and purposeful. You know, the, like, a bunch of tangential ideas that were brought together to make something whole. You know, a defining version of Superman for people. And I think this Spider-Man movie does the same thing. And it's also very similar in its structure. It it does that, but it also, it throws a lot out the window that made a lot of comics purists really upset. Yes, um, which like I, again, the organic web shooters. The organic web shooters, um, we completely skip over Gwen Stacy. Um, who was basically the lowest lane to Peter Parker's Spider-Man. <laughs> I mean, she it, Gwen Stacy didn't have a lot of depth for a long time. That kind of came with later writers. Honestly, the, for the longest time, the most impactful thing Gwen Stacy did was die. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but yeah. But, well, now, but she's become, like, now she's been revitalized as, like, you know, Gwenpool and shit like that. Uh, Gwenpool where... is not actually Gwen Stacy, though. Oh, shit. Um, yeah. But... But was, uh, was, uh, Spider Gwen. Spider Gwen. Sorry, yeah. I, I, I mixed them up. I, yeah, uh, great, great comic. Also, some of the best art uh, of the modern era because it's actually different and not just trying to be like, you know, boring yeah. physical appearances. But uh, great, great comic. But like you know, it skips over that completely, and it really gets the idea that it should be about Peter Parker and Mary Jane. And because Mary Jane was introduced in the comics as a rival to um, Gwen Stacy, which is just odd to think about. Yeah, it's uh, it's very male writer for sure, too, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it finds this truth in the history of Spider-Man comics and it's able to kind of create something wholesome from maybe history that's a little uh, flawed. Like yeah. all comics, you know. Well, I think the I think the brilliant stroke in this movie, and what I think helps carry. Because I was like, I, it was one thing where I kind of went in with. I wanted to be like, how do they? Because I didn't really remember how they handled the ro the romance, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Like, when I think about these movies, I think about the action a little more. And usually when I revisit movies like this, it's like, there's always, like, a little bit to be desired with the, like, especially female characters in these stories. Um, but I think the stroke of genius with this is that he isn't, like, just, like, he's definitely awkward around her. And it's played up big time. But they're not complete strangers, you know? They've been ne- they've been next-door neighbors their whole life. She's the girl next door, literally. There's a history between the characters. There's genuine chemistry. I know it's kind of cool online to say, like, oh, they have no chemistry, and she's just a damsel in distress. Mary Jane Watson consistently has her own agency, even though she does require saving by the end. Her story's not tied to that part of that narrative. You know what I mean? Kirsten Dunst is so good in these movies. She's fucking fantastic. I, I rewatched the Sofia Coppola movie lately. Uh, what did I uh, What the fuck? Virgin Suicides? No, that one's great. What's the... Mary Antoinette? Beguiled. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I was just like, God damn, she is awesome <laughs> in, like, everything. Yeah, she's been great. And, you know, she's she's definitely... I don't know, I like, people talk down about her character, but I think they did a pretty good job with her, um, which I wasn't expecting, because that's usually not the case with love interests in these type of movies. Yeah, I mean, we're just coming off the Batman film series, where it's, like, the most inconsistent <laughs> female characterization ever. Nicole Kidman, still somehow the most well-rounded, and that's only because she wanted to fuck Batman. Yeah, Chase Meridian, her number one goal is to fuck Batman. She's the best female character in the batman films wait wait damn. no i got a, a catwoman catwoman's uh, oh you know what? Yeah, batman I, returns yeah I, yeah you know what yeah. that's a slip up but she's the as a mainstay love interest because the catwoman love interest thing never really goes anywhere mm-hmm. it's just kind of a like she, will they won't they yeah she really is her own person so catwoman's the best female character but love interest it's chase meridian yeah and i think <laughs> even though this crazy um the, the romance is very clearly like the point of this Spider-Man series, uh, overall, even like just the way it's shot, like New York and the way the character is treated, it's heightened and very romantic. There's like the yes. sweeping shots of New York that kind of fill you with like this great sense of um, like whimsy and wonder even, you know? And I've been to New York. It ain't. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. Now, this is definitely like fairy tale New York. Yeah. Like, uh, it's It's very emotionally fulfilling oh no it's it honestly this is i don't know this is like one of those movies that just makes you feel good about watching movies oh god yeah man um like i and it's hard to even say because it's just it does so much that just feels right um and yeah i i don't know um and this i mean it might be nostalgia talk because this is a very nostalgic movie for me um, my dad snuck me out of school to see this. <sighs> so, also, I got, like, a big memory of me is that we, my dad, like, stopped whatever we were doing one day and made us gather around the computer as we waited for a QuickTime file to load <laughs> of, of the scene where Peter Parker comes back to the house with a cut on his arm. And we watched that clip on our computer. And that was like the wow. only trailer. I, that was the only trailer I saw for Spider Man. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So here's here's one thing for me from that era. Um, 
I was very excited for this. I don't remember watching trailers or anything, but I don't know. I probably saw some at a theater or something like that. Um, the year Spider-Man came out, my parents got divorced and my uncle took me to go watch Spider-Man. And so poor little Diego brain couldn't comprehend what life would be like with divorced parents. Cause no one else on the planet has divorced parents, right? Like what am I going to do? You know? Yeah. And, um, and so just hanging out with my uncle when I got to watch Spider-Man and then I saw Peter had that close relationship with his uncle. I was like, it, it changed my world. Mm-hmm. Like that, that might've saved me from like having little kid depression at the time. Like it, it is, it was a magical experience. We'll get into it, but there's there are moments in this where, like, it was, like, the first time you have these, like, movie moments for me. So, like, there's definitely a lot of nostalgia for this movie for me. Again, I think I pride myself on being able to be like, yeah, no, this probably didn't work, but I still love it anyways because it, it, it makes me happy. No, this is also, like, a perfectly directed movie with, like, <laughs> it's for what incredible it, it, set pieces. It 100% achieves what it's going for. You might not be on board with what it's going for, but it, it, it gets what it's trying to do. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. Wow. It is my curse. Who are you? Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. All right, let's talk about the cast. Tobey Maguire was cast as Peter Parker, as Spider-Man. One of the I leaders think... of the Pussy Posse. Yes, I was going to say that. Okay, I had part, to throw it in there somewhere. Of, I didn't know if you were gonna part of Leo Leonardo DiCaprio's pussy posse. Um, which is that what he's most famous for at this point? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I know. Well, because we only really, I only really know him from these movies, and he's really good. Uh, again, like very awkward, mm-hmm. um, but very. He's got this warmth about him. Like, I, I believe that he's trying his best all the time. And I think he's like, trying his yeah. best, but he's also, like, genuinely a creep at times. Yeah, a little bit, but it's like... He's a creep without being, like, a monster, you know? like He's a dude who's who doesn't understand social interactions because he hasn't had a lot of them, mm-hmm. I think, is what it is. And, yeah, and he comes with a... He, I mean, he's raised by his aunt and uncle, so he has a pretty simplistic view of the world. And, you know, he's just unleashed. <laughs> now you're making him sound like a monster. I mean, I'm just saying, like, he's not. He's just, he's like Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is this is what must have happened with all the other drafts we talked about. Mm-hmm. People saw that same thing and they're like, well, let's just make him a full-on movie monster. <laughs> yeah, let's just make him. This, uh... Well, didn't you read the one draft of this where he just walks around going, friend? <laughs> Shout out to Boris Karloff. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have been an amazing Dr. Octopus. Yes, um, but instead, there is no Dr. Octopus in this film. No, they uh, even though he because they were like, let's not have three origin stories in one movie. There's, I, I wish I found, I was looking for, I had an art book of this movie when I was a kid. Like a really high-end one. And it had some of the artwork for Dr. Octopus for this movie. Um, some con- concept art, and they, but then they cut him at some point, which was which was the smart decision. That would have been lifted directly from Ultimate Spider-Man. Doctor Octopus is hurt in the lab accident that creates the Green Goblin, but here we just get Norman Osborn played by Willem Dafoe, who is amazing. Back to formula. He is, he is all, you know what amazed me about his performance rewatching it? He's basically three people. 
No, he, he has such range, you're right. But he's also, like, always at 11. <laughs> like, no matter what version of himself he's playing, he's, like, the most version of that self. This, is, this isn't a criticism, I'm just gonna say. I really like the Green Goblin and Norman Osborn dichotomy a lot, because Norman Osborn's basically just, like, a smarter version of Donald Trump. Yeah. And then the Green Goblin's, like, this med- medieval fantasy monster. And it's like, yeah, that's a great disguise, because how would that even, like... You would never connect those two together, right? They're both assholes. And if you found out Norman Osborn was a supervillain, you'd be like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But um, not those two together. And in this movie... This is not again not a criticism. I just think it's very funny at the end when Peter's like, "Mr. Osborn," like he's surprised because yeah. it's like, "Yeah, no shit, that dude's like a supervillain." You know how much I sacrificed? Goddamn, this guy played Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, what a choice! And he makes a lot of choices, and they're all it, endlessly entertaining. I think these films also tend to borderline on camp. Maybe camp's the wrong word. I don't know, but um. They get very close, I think. Yeah. Um, but you know what I really like about his performance? Uh, that it's the greatest ever? No, but like that he, he is a genuinely warm guy in front of Peter Parker, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's, he's a fairly friendly person, but there's like a sinisterness underneath all of it. And we only really get glimpses of it in the scenes when it's just him and Harry, you know? Yeah. And we really don't get a glimpse, like, we don't get a full glimpse of, like, you can put it together, but you don't get a full glimpse of just how fucked up he is until, like, much later in the film. Like, you kind of almost wonder if he was a nice enough guy that then got turned into the goblin and then went crazy. But then, like, by the end, it's like, no, he wasn't a good person. Yeah, he, he was always, in this universe, he was always going to be that, you know. Which is also uh, an interesting idea because for the this Spider-Man trilogy, the majority of antagonists, at least, even the non-supervillain kind, have a humanity and an empathy to them. Norman Osborn kind of doesn't. Not not to the extent, anyways. There are moments, but it's also like he's he's kind of the one that can't be redeemed, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't, he can't be helped at the end, whereas a lot of these characters can be. Um, but he can't. He's, he's fucked from the start. Yeah. Uh, but as we get his son, Harry Osborn, played by James Franco. And maybe the greatest performance he's ever given outside of Spring Breakers, I think. Or, or Pineapple Express. Oh, he's so fucking good in that he's movie. He's really good in Pineapple Express. I mean, it's become, um, become a thing, but he is very good in it. Yeah, uh... uh I, when I was watching these for the first time, like a couple years ago, it, it had been a while since I was regularly watching them. Now I do it like almost every month. <laughs> uh, James Franco really stood out to me, where I was like, "This dude is perfectly pathetic." Yes, like just perfect little weasel, constantly like a thorn in people in Peter's side and MJ's side, but like also like you kind you do feel for him, you know, like he's trying to live up to his clearly emotionally abusive father yes but also like not finding any like sort of uh anything to fill that void inside of him so he's like Mm -hmm. well if i can't have what i want then i'll take what peter wants i'll start i'll ask out mj you know like uh and all these relationships make sense yeah and it's it's so interesting that it's it's actually a pretty deep like relationship drama at the heart of it like it's you know for for a movie that really it's for children (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. The, the yeah. villain of this movie is called the Green Goblin. <laughs> like, and he laughs and he looks like a fucking, uh, fucking Power Rangers villain. But, like, it's, it's a movie about a guy who stole, who, who started dating the girl that he knows his best friend has always loved. Just because he blames his friend for stealing his father's love, which his friend never tried to do. <laughs> like, that's not in, like, that's, like, something out of ordinary people, you know? <laughs> like, um, that's crazy that that's in this movie. And I was also kind of surprised how little James Franco was in this, because I, now I know him as, like, you can't escape James Franco, and now everyone hates James Franco. <laughs> yeah. But, like, he is a very, he's a supporting character. Especially in this, and more so in two, and that's interesting to me because like he was he was really being teed up for like finally, you know, it was like saving him for a third film, you know. And well, movies we'll, don't we'll get to that. Yeah, but movies don't do it like where he still has complete arcs in every movie, but it's still kind of a slow burn, you know. Yeah, and it's, especially in the second one, I, I want to talk about why he. I think he has a great arc in that movie. By not really having an arc in that yeah. movie, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the, the the supporting characters all have this great, like, uh, dimension to them. Like, they all have got their own things going on, which is, again, why I, I'm a really big defender of the romance in these films. MJ has other things in her life, other problems. She comes from a, from an abusive household, too, which is why I think she does have a genuine connection to Harry. And I think he does too, at a, to a certain extent, but could never really understand that because that's not why he's going after her. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, and how she has these hopes and dreams that are completely unrelated to Peter. And, you know, we're not following her specifically, so we don't get to see her, like, kind of rise and fall, so to speak. Well, or, it's, like... it's interesting because from the start of this movie, Peter Parker's in love with MJ, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's not a movie about him falling in love with her. But it is a movie about her falling in love with him, you know? Yeah, and him coming to the realization that he can't handle that with yeah. his new responsibilities. Um, yeah, that's that, that's a whole other thing, honestly. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, that's the whole plot of the next fucking movie. <laughs> um, but it's just interesting because it really, she she drives a lot of the emotions of this. And goddamn, is she good. They also got Cliff Robertson and Ro- fucking Rosemary Harris as Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking performances. And enlightening, but heartbreaking. Rosemary Harris gets more to do in the next one, but she, she still doesn't a lot in this. Um, but Cliff Robertson's really selling it. Like, he's such a, he really, and you know what? I went in this movie, eight-year-old Matt did not know the Spider-Man story. <laughs> So I did not know where Uncle Ben was going. I didn't understand that was like, you know, it's like going to the Batman, not realizing his parents are going to get killed. (laughs) Why are they going down that alley? Oh, no. But what's interesting, again, just to compare it, because I think Spider-Man really is a good comparison to Batman, not just in terms of popularity, but in terms of like male superhero. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing about it is that Batman becomes Batman in response to his parents' killings, but Peter Parker is already Spider-Man before the death of Uncle Ben. It just, it gives him focus later, you know? Yeah, and to go to that, that um, like, 
that human dimension that, that Peter Parker has, he's indirectly responsible for the events that lead to Ben's death, that this is a big thing. And I, again, I'm open to, to adaptations playing loose with continuity or like um, the original like story versions of themselves, right? Like whatever they need to tell their version of a story, go ahead. I think it's a mistake to have films that don't have Uncle Ben. I'll get to that later. I just want to say that I, I think this movie kind of does it perfectly. And it's very unfortunate that other movies have to follow that. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's the thing, because they, they tried it again, and it really doesn't work. Oh, no, yeah, that's... And, <laughs> oof. Honestly, if you can't make it work, I'd rather not do it if it can't if you can't make it work, honestly. I, 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 need, I need that dimension that Uncle Ben was there, that, that a void is, is in their lives, not because of it. It doesn't have to stay that way forever. Mm -hmm. I, I think Peter's actions and guilt over this are, are essential to the character. I guess, but I don't know. I think it works sometimes. It just, if you're going to, I don't want to see the same stories again, I guess. Uh, that's just my perspective though. Yeah. Well, I, I would never want, let's say there was another Spider-Man movie that follows the same beats almost verbatim by the minute uh, to the original Spider-Man. I wouldn't want to see that again. That would make me very upset and frustrated. God forbid I ever had to sit through something like that again. Oh yeah. Um, I'm not asking for that for sure. Or even like to see Uncle Ben die again. I just need to know that there is a presence there or was a presence there. So you don't see that haunting Vietnam stare in Tom Holland's eyes. But no, the, the Uncle Ben dying scene is still a real tearjerker too. Hmm. Oh no. It's, and it's interesting because like he gets last moments with him, but like it's Uncle Ben doesn't say anything great on his death, you know? He just dies. Like, that's brutal. It's brutal and just brilliant writing. I feel like that yeah. was a an Alvin Sargent thing. Maybe, yeah. It, it feels like it doesn't take place in that, like, romanticized version of New York. This feels like a genuine tragedy pulled out of the headlines almost. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, he had, the last time he saw him, he just gave him the, speech, the great power responsibility speech. Yep. And then he rebukes that, and because of it, he dies. Yep. Exactly. And, I mean, if you want to talk about something shocking, as a kid, I mean, that scene, you know, when the guy robs the, he robs the wrestling dude, and then Peter lets him go, and like, I, you know, I'm eight, I don't know where the story's going, I'm like, yeah, let that guy go, fuck him. Like, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like, so, yeah. So, like, this this movie, that, that whole reveal, as obvious as it is to an adult, for a kid, it was a real gut punch. And um, that that that's definitely influenced a lot of me growing up. But we'll get to more of that because um, we got to talk about the one ultimate performance in this film. Put an ad on the front page: cash money for a picture of Spider-Man. He doesn't want to be famous, and I'll make him infamous. J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson is the greatest comic book performance that there ever has been or ever will be. You cannot top this. It's there's no more perfect casting. <laughs> it is so good. <laughs> I mean, holy shit! Like, did, did did someone tell J.K. Simmons that he was destined to play J. Jonah Jameson? Because <laughs> like, like it's you couldn't have picked a better guy other than like Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> like, you can't find a guy who's more perfect for J. Jonah Jameson. 
And it says a lot that all the uh, the reboots that have come since have been afraid to do J. Jonah Jameson. As a result, I mean... That's something I completely get. It's like, yeah, I wouldn't know what to do. Like, you just... What what do you do? I know. I would just get just get him. No explanation. It's just J.K. Simmons again. Uh, yeah, You know what? As long as we still got him, fuck yeah. Why not? Just do it. I mean, he's perfect. He's, he's got a lot of free uh, time now that he won't be playing Commissioner Gordon anymore. Oh, he got so cut for that role, and I don't know why. I neither do I. <laughs> um. Oh, I also want to give a shout out to Ted Raimi. Yes, as uh, no, the Hoffman. whole uh, the whole newspaper group is great. Yeah, um, incredible cast, uh, filling an, an incredible story. Honestly, simple, simple again. Movie for children, but uh, so much heart, and and uh, it it really. It reminds me of why I love going to the movies, and I have not seen this first film on the big screen since 2002. But uh, one thing I had to say, there's a little bit of a clunkiness in the beginning of this film. Like, it's not the worst. It's not the worst thing ever. But, like, to me, I don't get why, like, maybe you could have tied these genetically engineered spiders to Oscorp. You know? Like, that's that's the thing other versions have done but yeah the other versions have done it the problem is that they tie everything to oscorp yeah that's that's too much in my yeah. i would agree um, that's too much but for one, i'm just talking one about one villain being tied to oscorp or one one occasion of spider-man's journey being tied to oscorp specifically with the green goblin i'm cool with that yeah just, I just make think it that one in this thing. story it would have worked better if like oh yeah you know, yeah if you know Willem Dafoe's like, oh, I'll let the class go on a tour of Oscorp Labs. And James Franco's all embarrassed because of his dad and all that shit. Um, and I don't know. I think that would have been... It's just it would have made the story a little tighter. Yeah, I think... Yeah, it probably would have run smoother. This is one of those situations, I think, where, like, on the page... Like, let's say I was a script reader for Sony Pictures back then. I would have been like, hey, guys, this is... Why don't you just tie it together, like you said? Yeah, um, yeah. But then uh, when you watch it in movie form, it's like, well, it's not really an issue. They're just not connected, and then their journeys don't connect till the halfway mark of the film, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can roll with that. Like you know, there's this whole saying on Twitter. I've been seeing a lot, seeing it a lot recently, where they're like, you can't make a great movie without a great script. And I'm not condoning that you don't go into making a movie without <laughs> a great script. I'm just saying, what the fuck is anyone talking about? You do not. What the fuck? Well, <laughs> That's just not true. You, you should never overemphasize one element of filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. And and also, the people that usually say that, they're, they're always talking about a very specific type of script. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, one that f- fits a very convenient three-act structure narrative. Yeah. And, I'm, you know, for a movie like Spider-Man, yeah, maybe. But to me, it just, I think that, because I, I do have a problem with, it just is it like a little, like, Again, it's like a very minor hiccup to, for me, but like, it's a very interesting coincidence that these two things just happen to happen side by side. In defense of the film, I will say that I think the story of Spider-Man in this in in this film is very much kind of dealing with the concept of fate, not not so much about destiny, but about like uh, fate being thrust upon these characters and them having to deal with it. And Norman Osborn is very much a character who 
loves the power and craves the power. No, no, their 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 dynamic is set up very well. Of like the basically the two ways you can take the with great power there must also come great responsibility line. You know, like it's the and that's that that's also in the next film as well. Um, like I, it's it works. It just it takes a while for it to meet for me. Because um, it, it feels like we have two independent stories that eventually meet, as opposed to what could have just been one continuous story. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's thematically tied. I think that's why it works for me still. Like um, clearly, because um, I mean it's not that off. Because a lot of the Marvel early comics are kind of about you know runaway science. You know, like what is and and also like you know weapons getting out of control, which Oscorp is definitely a representative of that. There's a lot of really interesting like ideas with that stuff, like just thematically and like story wise. Where um, also on the one part, I also do kind of like that it takes a little longer. It makes the world feel open before these two things start to clash. But that's that's enough on that. I think um, I really love the production contrast of like the humble beginnings of the Parker home with Ben, and then how it's like notably emptier next time. Whenever we see it again after his death. Um, uh, the high society of Oscorp, the uh, uh, just the, just the way that they're contrasted, like um, with the Osborne residence and where Peter comes from, and how it's consist- consistently like it's it's a noted aspect of the production, uh, tossing these two characters into grounds that they should be like on even playing fields with, with the the goblin flying around everywhere and Spider Man swinging around. I just I just thought that was very interesting the the way that they frame these characters when they're White. in and out of their costumes on the rooftops uh-huh. and who's kind of looks more comfortable there on a regular basis. I think a big reason for the success of the superhero genre right now, specifically Marvel, because I mean, without I'm not trying to ruffle any feathers, but Marvel has had much better success in terms of you know popularity than DC, with the exception of the Batman films. And that is because I would argue that the Marvel comics all kind of take place in this near future, you know? We're kind of living in that near future right now. Like, this is the perfect era for, like, you know, we're right on the verge of a lot of technology, like, taking us in a weird direction. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's why I think these films are really hitting right now, and also why I think we will hit a point where they're just going to die, like, really quick. And when that's going to be very soon. You know, Peter Parker is kind of the best version of it because he, it happens to him by accident, you know? He didn't sign up for the military, he didn't build an armored suit, you know? It's, he's a, he's a complete accident. And, you know, even the Hulk, who is a monster, he was experimenting with the stuff. Mm. So, I think it just, it makes him unique in that way. Um, Yeah, it it really does. And I, I think there's also, to bring it back to the production thing too. Yeah, yeah. Of, of the suit not having, like, the moving eyes or anything like that. Like, that's just, like, it seems impossible for the time back then. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's also kind of, like, this this cool, again, a contrast to the Goblin thing where go, uh, the Goblin and Norman Osborn, they're just bad guys. Again, with, like, dynamic dimensions and, like, uh, even an empathy to those characters, even though they're villains, you know? There's even there's an empathy more than there usually is even in the comics. I mean, most of the Spider-Man's villains aren't that empathetic in the early comics. Yeah, yeah. And the film does lend them that that aspect, too. But uh, I, I think it's telling that, like, 
there were a lot of complaints about how people wish the goblin had like a, a more expressive mask. I'm no longer on board with that. I, I think this is exactly what this version of the goblin needed because he's just basically operating in one mode, you know? I don't think the mask is the problem, but I don't think they quite got there with the suit. Like, I think the Spider-Man suit looks great, you know? This uh, is still the best Spider-Man suit. I think. It looks really good. Um, I like the, like, 3D webbing they kind of have on it where, it, like, it kind of, like, st stands out. Um, yeah, I, I think they had to put that on over the suit, like, at a... Yeah. Like, before. I mean, after... Um, Mm. They, they put on the suit separately. That's that's the hard process. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but the goblin, like the mask, looks fine. I think the body of the goblin looks a little weird. Uh, it's with like, the big body action shots. Yeah, yeah it's a little funky. It, it's like trying to be like high tech. Like it's it, it's trying to be like you know he's like high tech and military versus kind of like Parker, who's more naturalistic in a way, um, and. It just, I don't know, it, they, it's, it, it feels a little off compared to, but not like, I'm not, I wouldn't say a disaster. Um, some people like really hated the goblin look in this. Yeah, they're, they're wrong, but there are issues with it. I think it could have maybe gone through something else. It's better than like other interpretations where the goblin is like a literal monster. Like I don't like Hulk Green Goblin. The one time I've ever liked it was in Spider-Verse. And it's not even a focus of the film. Yeah, it's that's like, like a, like a two-second thing. But, like, they also, they really could have done, like, that could have been anyone. Mm -hmm. Like, that could have been Sandman. Yeah, I'm not sure why they went with that. But that, that's a nitpick for that movie. I think that's the only one you can, like, defeat really quickly. Um, yeah, I'm not a, not a giant fan of that. But, you know, we get, and then, you know, this movie's a very obvious metaphor for puberty. You alright? Uh, I'm fine. Any better this morning? Any change? Change? Yeah. Big change. I love subtle cinema. Oh, yeah. The art <laughs> of cinema. <laughs> Criterion Collection when? Yes. <laughs> and he's literally peeking at MJ through his window after he's shooting web all over his room. Yeah. I mean, come on now. Yeah, come on, guy. I do. I, one scene I really like in this is when he gets in the first fight with Flash Thompson, who's like a musclehead idiot. <laughs> um, MJ is not impressed by his act of violence. I, I really like that aspect too, and I think it's something that we need more of in superheroes. Like I always bring up the first Thor. I'm a big fan of um, where the act, the big action scene in the first act, is the emotional low point of the film. I I, I always find that so fascinating. And in Spider-Man, which is a film that has great action, uh, the fights are just brutal a lot of the time, especially in the finale. And they're not really heroic. It's like violence is not something that you should be inspired by with these films. And the, I, I think I, I think very clearly that is the intention. Oh, definitely. Um, no, honestly, I think this might be a peak for superhero action. Um, I don't think it ever got as good as this. Yeah, I'm trying to think. The, the last third of the Avengers is pretty outstanding. But other than that, and that doesn't even reach this. I, I want to make clear. I do not think that reaches the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. All three of the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans have incredible 
maybe even like impeccable action. The Avengers films, like even the good ones, they always have an action scene that feels pointless and boring. Like, and here, like all of them are good. And that's like, you don't see that anymore. You know, you don't see it like feels like a forced action scene or like even like a forced, like every one of those fucking Marvel movies, they end up fighting like 50 people by the end. Cause that's the only way they know how to do action. There's like, I can't think of a last time where it was one-on-one, like the whole movie, like the whole, you know, yeah, you know, like other than the recent Spider-Man films, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, we will get there. But like, you know, I I don't know. I just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, it's, I'm not like angry about it. It's just, that's just the reality of it. I think, I think, um, not to get into a thing, but I, I, I think when, now that we're entering this era where everything, we're going to see a lot of streaming. I hope we get to see more intimate stories told on streaming services and the big stuff saved for theaters, but even that I know won't last long. Like, I feel like we're going to get an era of that, and then it's just going to get, like, supplanted with... We're, now all the big-budget action movies are just going to be on streaming services. <laughs> Everything's going to be an event. So that's the... No, that's kill myself. That's the hell we're heading towards, but whatever. Um, this movie's fun. You get him. You get him first tr- trying his powers for the first time. Go whip. Fly. Up, up and away, whip. Shazam. Go, 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 whip, go. I really love that. That really cracked up the theater, I remember, when I saw this. <laughs> um, but, uh, I don't know. Um, we also, we get we get Peter and MJ in the backyard. We have that discussion. Um, and they talk about their dreams. Again, where it's not like, you know, each person isn't like trying to stop the other person's dream in some way. <laughs> <laughs> like where Peter wants to be a photographer and she wants to be an actress and they both encourage each other. Which you mean is like a healthy functioning relationship on yeah, film? Yeah, you know. Um where one That's of their so weird. Yeah. Although uh, one of these elements will become weird by the third movie. And then we get uh, the brilliant cinematic moment of cool car. It feels like it was done last minute. It's very bizarre, and you know what? Some, some, there's some correlation between horror, low budget horror filmmakers, and fantasy epics, because this is almost kind of a like a mini budget epic. Yeah, yeah. Almost like it, it's it's telling one story for a long period of time, etc. Um, Peter Jackson, you know, God bless him for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, three of the greatest films ever made in any form, I'd argue. Um. Also occasionally has moments in his films where it's like, why was that cut that way? That was yes. weird. <laughs> well, it's definitely um, goofy moments. and But I appreciate, honestly, I think that's what gives this movie its charm. Um, it works incredibly well. Even when it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> I, would, I would argue that about the Lord of the Rings films, too. It's The problem is when those movies just generally aren't good. <laughs> Which, you know, of course happens. Uh, uh, not in the first three obviously you're not referring to no good answer (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna end the podcast yeah we can just we can just get to one i want to talk about is uh 
the World Unity Festival. The great Macy Gray, yep. who has not aged this film at all. No, but I just love the o- Oscorp Industries World Unity Festival. <laughs> which they're a weapons place. Weapons company. That's very which funny. Is- it's hilarious, and I don't think it's an accident also. It somehow feels both pre-9-11 and post-9-11 at the same time. Because this was shot in, like, 2000. Like, they shot, like, early... It finished filming, like, early 2001. And so the world changed while they were making it. And I don't want to jump ahead too far, but I think this brings up a point that I did want to bring up throughout this trilogy. Even though uh, some of the characters, or I guess the first two villains are essentially scientists, uh, each entry in the trilogy has very different villains, even when they occupy a similar thematic space. So the first film is a military contractor. The second film, it's a, a scientist with a broken dream. The third film, it, it's it's about a lot, and we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is about how everyone has problems. Everyone is very flawed. If you want to talk about, though, about me having a problem with the two, like, creations of the Goblin and Peter Parker, like, not really meeting up well, I definitely have problems with the three villain introduction in Spider-Man 3, (laughs) which are so disconnected, it's ridiculous. It's Um, a fun time. We'll we'll get to that, though. Yeah. Um, but I, I was just rewatching these really shocked me how different they were. And it's just a nice change of pace. Yeah, yeah. I got to talk about, though, that when the pumpkin bomb kills the board of directors for the Oscorp company, it's so goofy now, but it, like, terrified me as a child. You know what? It's goofy, but it's that weird kind of, like, haha, that's cool, in a way that's also, like, really unnerving. Like, haha, yeah, he got kind of got to laugh at it because... The thought of being vaporized is actually really horrifying if you spend more than five seconds thinking about it. Yes. Um, it's, it's still a scary image to me. Yeah. Uh, great, great production on that fight scene, too. I just got to let you know, I do have a line. I do have a note here that is just one line. It says, Willem Dafoe, crazy acting. <laughs> I surrender. And it's it's the scene of, well, no, it's it's the scene of him talking to himself in the mirror. Oh, I Fucking amazing. I, I, I think I, I we got maybe we should just stop because we are kind of just gonna for the rest of the movie just go like great scene. Because <laughs> we really do we really kind of just love this movie. Um but uh I you know, you gotta check this movie out if you haven't seen it. What the fuck is wrong with you? I, I just want to touch on the ending. Yes. Uh including the the bridge, the final fight, and then the a- the absolute ending. So when the, the civilians of New York Essentially saved Spider-Man in his fight with the Green Goblin. Again, shot before 9-11, finished after 9-11. It occupied this very um, interesting space, I think, in in American pop culture. I think something that was maybe necessary. Is that going to sound weird if I say that? Like, I think it's something people really desired and craved. Like, not just movies as an escapism, but like something a little more inspiring. We needed at this time. America really wanted someone to tell them that everything was all right. Yeah, because we were we were kind of losing our minds at the time. I'm not sure if those sentiments worked out in the long run. Uh, I would argue but, no. 
but uh, yeah, it was it was you know, it was a time of like you know when the Yankees would play in Boston and Boston would be like, "Go Yankees," <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. it was that it was that era. It was like Rudy Giuliani; he's a hero. <laughs> God damn! At least he didn't have a cameo in this. Like, that's the oh, only. God, that's God. the that's the other way this could have gone. <laughs> Uh, and the the final fight between Peter Parker and Norman Osborn in that like decrepit like building with the brick walls and everything, uh, amazing. And it's just so brutal. Mm. Every punch is like the worst thing that's ever happened to someone on screen. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> there's like blood and sweat flying everywhere. The mask is torn to bits. And I like that like the bricks are like kind of flying around, like. I do like this movie does this weird thing where it will go from like a real world location or at least like a facsimile of a real world location to an obvious set and it like works super well. Yeah. Like I don't really know what to say like it it, it there's this weird like almost magical realism in this movie. You know, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, I, I looked into the behind the scenes of it and like, you know, of course, the truth is just that like, yeah, you can't always shoot like. In every part of New York, twenty four seven, and this was before nine eleven. Yeah, yeah. So imagine now. There is a lot of good, like they shot on rooftops and stuff like that, um, which is very yeah, much so, appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Some of those rooftops, though, are just sets. Yeah. And I did not know some of them were just sets. So that's <laughs> on me. Hey, I I am the fool. Um, but I I think that uh, I don't know. It's it's very because um, they never got back to like. New York City through Spider-Man's eyes, which is what this movie feels like. And, you know, they never got back to this. To the point where, like, you know, not to dunk on the amazing Spider-Man films while I can, but it's, like, it's so obvious they didn't film huge chunks of that in New York, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the streets are too wide, the buildings are too tiny, and they never do anything with it, you know? Tell There's... that to that scene, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, with all the Sony product placement in Times Square. Oh, yeah. Or how about the scene where it's like, oh, look, there's a woman dressed as a Statue of Liberty. Like, that, like, this is, like, again, this is, like, fairy tale New York, but, like, Amazing Spider-Man is, like, tourist New York. <laughs> like, this is what someone, like, when they get off a bus and they're like, oh, look at all these buildings, <laughs> like... <laughs> And this movie, it feels like we're looking at New York City through Spider-Man's eyes. Especially during that great montage early on. He stinks, um, and I don't like him. He stinks, and I don't like him. Um, <laughs> Guy which, with eight legs. Why, uh, hot. <laughs> why did montages go away? I don't know. Movies need them again. Yeah, montages are great. Yeah. Um, I just want to, as we wrap up then, I, I do think it's a little odd that the fight is not like on some building initially or like in the middle of, of New York, but the fight's not really about like the battle for New York's soul. Yeah. So it, it's just about two men dealing with great power thrust upon them. And yeah, I, I think that really works. Another refreshing thing is that, yeah, it doesn't come down to the whole fucking world on the line. Every superhero film does that these days. Mm-hmm. Like we can't imagine how these movies work with like, where it's really it's here it's it's it really is about Green Goblin and Spider Man. Like I mean, he, he does talk about like I will take oh we can rule the city, but it's not like 
at the end of the film, it's like, if my laser goes off in six minutes, all the people will be turned into goblin people. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. It's not something, like, what you don't need. And, like, th- there's only the doomsday plot in the second movie, and it, like, naturally builds to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I just like that there's no force, like, bigger thing here. Yeah. The, the world is not in danger. But Peter Parker's world is yeah. with Aunt May, Harry, or he he thinks Harry, you know, initially, and um, Aunt and uh, Mary Jane. Goblin fucking mentions that he's going to torture Mary Jane to death. Yeah, which is like Jesus again for kids. But what the yeah, fuck? We're gonna have a hell of a time. But of course, uh, another recurring thing is you know the villains get themselves killed, so the goblin gets killed by his own glider. And it's genuinely a sad moment where he, whether it's truthful or not, he has like this sad realization. And then he, all, the last words he says are "Don't tell Harry," which is which is interesting. I got to point out that line because that's a line that is said earlier in the film by MJ. Remember, mm-hmm. like and but like it's another. It, it's just again it, that's another like kind of interesting element because it's you know it's not like Green Goblin knew about that. Yeah, I just like that. I like that. Like it's a repeated line that, like, but the character doesn't know about it. You know. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it, yeah, and he keeps the promise to yeah. a man as terrible as that, and that's, I think that speaks to the real virtues of of Peter. Yep. At this point in his life, and it's a, it's it's a sad ending. It's a real downer, man. Yeah, it's a real downer. I mean, it ends with a funeral, and yep. it ends with Peter at Uncle Ben's grave and MJ realizing that she has feelings for Peter, and then him rejecting her. It's not my favorite ending to these Spider-Man movies. <laughs> But this it's like Batman Begins. This is the quintessential cinematic version of this character with that ending. Or Batman guess, I... has the uh, the um, I never said thank you. I'll never have to exchange this one. Th- this is the Spider-Man thesis statement. I'm not sure if I agree. Interesting. But, well, I think that this is definitely an internalized thesis statement. But I think the second film realizes that it shouldn't be the thesis statement for Spider-Man. Well, that's the thing. The film explains like why the character will grow out of that. But this like for the start of a Spider-Man journey, this is about as perfect as you get. I guess. Yeah. I'll definitely, I'll definitely have a lot more to talk about. This is my burden. This is my curse. So, Mm -hmm. but that I really do have to, we have to save that for the next one. Yeah. Yeah. What is framed as, Tragic is also kind of framed heroically, but I would also argue that in that final swing, something I dearly miss from these movies too. Um, you know, you got the triumphant Danny Elfman score, who we didn't even talk about, but he's fucking, you know, this is the oh, yeah. shit right here. There's a real melancholy to it. it. It doesn't feel heroic. Watching it repeated times over the years, it's not an inspiring ending. It's it's a sad one. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the real, like, greatness of this movie is that it doesn't just, like masturbate to these ideals of like i gotta be the lone hero i have to take care of everyone around me no one else can have this burden and it's like well if you do that you're in for some shit yeah and the next film thankfully does expand upon that and uh yeah we'll we'll get to that yeah this this movie's a masterpiece not everyone is meant to make a difference but for me the choice to live an ordinary life is no longer an option 
Yeah, if you haven't seen this, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. If you're one of those people that says The Amazing Spider-Man is better, I know you're literally one person who I am exactly talking to. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking to you. Uh, you're wrong. I, you know what? I heard a lot from, from good friends who I still care about very much. The one thing we just could not handle together was Spider-Man movie debates because they were like, no, 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 the Andrew Garfield one's like the real comic book one. And I was like, I can't. Anyone you that don't understand, I can't sit through it. <laughs> don't you want to like whenever someone says it's the real comic book version? Don't you want to just strangle them? I do, but you, I love like, them, so I won't. Don't you just want to like shove their head into like a pool of water and just watch the bubbles stop coming up? <laughs> no, that's no. <laughs> don't no, you no. just want to just watch this the light in their eyes go out? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, not really. How come when you kill a man in the heat of battle, it is called heroics? <laughs> When you kill a man in the heat of passion, it's called murder. Anyways, I'm going to try to bring it back for that as... This is my burden. I got to deal with these fucking people. Matt, where can the people find you if they still want to after that? On the FBI's most wanted list. <laughs> um, I'm at EmperorOTN at Twitter.com and YouTube and Patreon. And you could find me on Twitter.com at the Diego Crespo, the Waffle Press on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify now, iTunes, Patreon. Check that out. Help us get more equipment, etc. Um, also, links down below. Uh, if you want to buy Spider-Man, help out the show. Uh, just click that little link down there. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you didn't like this, like and subscribe anyways because you might find something you do like. We have been professionally unprofessional.